reading today is from Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 9. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he, as a sheep before his shearers, is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his dead, though he had no, that he had, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Our second reading is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my, my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. This is the word of the Lord. Today, I want to talk to you about that thing, the cross of Jesus Christ, the reason why our three candidates got baptized today. And people are getting baptized all around the world every single year. Tens of millions of people in country chapels, by the sea, in rivers, in shallow wells, in prisons, in paddling pools. People are being baptized everywhere because of the cross. Some of us here in this room today may be baptized as infants, a small sprinkling of water over our heads. We deeply affirm that and we we love that. Um, But the word baptism in the Greek quite literally means immersion, to be submerged fully in water and be raised up into a new kind of life. The Ethiopian man went down into the water. Now, 
The Eastern Orthodox Church takes this very seriously. They also baptize infants, but the way they do it is uh, they'll take this angelic, lovely, adorable baby, give it to the priest, and the priest will then head first into the water, then the feet, three times, one, two, three. They call it triple immersion, and the baby comes up feeling totally shocked with a sense of betrayal at their parents, and then they scream, and that's a really death-to-life experience, I think. We, as in Ford 8, don't do this. As you can see, we do uh, immerse consenting adults in a pool of warm water. <laughs> so whatever, however you've experienced baptism in your life, or however you've seen it, it has always acted as a kind of initiation into the Christian church. People taking up a new life and a new identity. And our reading from the book of Acts today uh, depicts the very first account of an individual baptism in the name of Jesus. And it's a very strange story. There's an Ethiopian eunuch and a man called Philip, one of Christ's disciples. It happens on the side of a road in the desert in kind of this out-of-the-way strange part of uh, Jerusalem to Gaza, uh, talking about strange old Jewish prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Now, we don't know very much about this Ethiopian eunuch or this, this whole interaction, but what we do know is really interesting, and we can speculate on what was happening in this man's heart. So you first know that he was an Ethiopian man, and that means that he was from south of, the, uh, south of, the, of Egypt, which is about modern-day Sudan in the, in, the, in the modern world today, Ethiopia. And we know that he was an important official in charge of the treasure of the queen of this land. So he was the treasurer and a cabinet minister. And as we know from Alexander Hamilton, he who holds the purse strings controls the rules, right? Um, so he was powerful, probably, very wealthy, a lot of status, traveling in a chariot. Chariots are pretty, you know, bent knees of the ancient world. But we also know he was a eunuch, which means at some point in his life he was castrated, and all the men, <laughs> you can wince, probably for the express purpose to go work in the queen's court, because men without their thing can be trusted in a, in a queen's palace, but no family. But the most important thing we read about this man was that he was on his way back from Jerusalem uh, where he had gone to worship. Now, why would a Ethiopian man a thousand miles away from Jerusalem come to worship the Jewish God in the capital city of Israel? Don't know. Maybe he was a Jew himself, or more likely he was a Jewish convert. Whatever the case, he was a man who was seeking something some kind of spiritual enlightenment, some kind of spiritual knowledge, he would travel a thousand miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. You don't go on a thousand mile road trip, pilgrimage, on a whim. You gotta be really serious about your spiritual quest. And while he was in Jerusalem, it turns out that he bought himself, it seems like, a scroll of Isaiah. Now, again, buying a scroll in that time is not a small expense. We can pick one of these guys up for a tenner at Waterstones or 30p in a charity shop maybe. But back in first century Middle East, imagine a massive piece of parchment that you had to carry in this big case, hand copied by candlelight. That's going to be a pretty penny. Again, a little clue that this man was incredibly wealthy, firstly, but also that he was really serious about his spiritual journey. Meanwhile, about 100 miles north, a man called Philip, one of Christ's disciples, is told by an angel to leave a city where he was experiencing a remarkable Christian revival. 
and go hang out in some out-of-the-way desert road, dirt track to wait for this man. And this is where this strange encounter happens between the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, the apostle. Now, the text the eunuch was reading is a very strange one. It's a really strange part of the book of Isaiah, written 600 years before this encounter. And the context of this is from our first reading, Isaiah 53, and it goes like this. You've just heard it. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Heavy stuff. And then this goes on to the passage which the eunuch asked Philip about. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and, and, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, he did not open up his mouth. And this baffles this Ethiopian man, our friend. Who is Isaiah talking about? This pierced one, this lamb, this silent one. And Philip and Christians for the last 2,000 years and any Sunday school will tell you Jesus. This is Jesus. We know him to be called Jesus Christ, the pierced one. So last month, I was in Italy uh, on holiday. It was delightful. You know, you know how it is. You know, it's beautiful sun, beautiful food and wine and olive oil and all the lovely things. But while we were there, we went to a lovely cathedral in the town we were staying in. And, uh, you know, beautiful, extravagant, stunning. But in the center of uh, the very front of this church, under the altar, hang this massive crucifix. I'm sure you've seen some of these around if you go to a more traditional church, with a figure of Jesus carved in wood, nailed to the cross, hanging right there above you, in a big um, monument. And all around this cathedral, there are tourists walking around and taking photos and chattering along and, and reading their little things of this is this artist here and artist there. But as they began to walk across the front of the cathedral, they would stop before this crucifix, and then they were arrested. And there was a moment of solemnity there. Some people crossed themselves, some people bowed, other people kind of stood there and looked a bit fidgety, other people looked down, actually. It was kind of interesting seeing how people reacted to this strange thing hanging above them. And I went and stood before this crucifix for a while. And I was struck again deeply about the strangeness of it all, the, the, the cognitive dissonance of, of the cross. Like imagine, for example, you went to a foreign land and someone asked you to come visit their temple to see a statue of the god that they worship. What would you expect? I think maybe big thrones, 10 out of 10 Greek bodies, smiling faces, peaceful smiles, uh, impressive, imposing figures. The last thing you'd expect, I think, is a mangled human body, nailed ruggedly to a cross with blood dripping from every limb. That is not something you worship. But that is the Jesus that the Christian church has worshipped for 2,000 years and who Isaiah prophesied about, a lamb being led to the slaughter. And Philip, it says, began, begins to explain to our Ethiopian friend uh, what he calls the good news about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this raises the question, doesn't it? Why is this good news? Why do we worship the cross, the Christ on the cross? Piercing, punishment, slaughter, these are not 
good news-sounding words. These are like BBC awful you know, news page words. Why is this good news? I'll tell you why, or at least I'll try. Now, every single one of us in this room has to contend with two fundamental truths about ourselves and about the human, the human race, all of us. And the first is this. The first is our unbelievable capacity for beauty. Aren't we humans just fantastic? We're in the most beautiful city in the world, in my opinion, and people like you and I made it. We, we write poetry, we write music, we do marvelous things, we love, we can feel compassion, we self-sacrifice. We are unbelievable. It's creatures. And it's no wonder that almost every single culture in the world has somewhat intuited that there is some kind of divine spark within the human person. Have you heard that before? Suppose the image of God is what we would say within us. But the second fundamental truth that we all have to contend with is also our infinite capacity of brokenness, to break things. We, 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 there's something within us that seems to rage and break, and we do things that we feel profound regret and shame and, and guilt in our hearts, and we have this ability to unleash both incredible beauty in the world, but also hurt the people we love most around us quite deeply. And it's as if we can't live up to the possibility of our beauty because of all our angst and our drama and our failure and our guilt. This is all in us. So to be human, to be really human, is to both be infinitely beautiful in the image of God and to be infinitely and deeply broken, compromised. And we really have to contend with that because this happens, this plays out on every single level of human existence. It happens on the geopolitical stage, war and peace. It happens in families. You know, families can be the source of the most amazing support and love in your life, but also the source of some of the deepest traumas in our life. You know, wherever it happens, though, on these layers of human existence, it all eventually spirals down right here into the human heart. And that can be very uncomfortable to actually accept as, as an individual, because it's easy very easy to locate uh, the sources of good and evil and the, and the conflict between beauty and brokenness out there in the world, and the CEOs and the politicians, the tyrants, the, 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 the evil manager at work or your weird family member who's a bit graspy. It, it's, 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 it's out there, isn't it? But the truth is, most of the people that we ascribe to be evil or compromised, all of them are motivated by the same things that you and I are in the end. Ambition, hope, Selfishness, altruism, a bit of insecurity, some ego, righteous intention, love even, however misguided. Everything out there, you could say, is an amplification of what happens in each one of our own hearts. So what happens in here, you and me, what happens in here, determines not just our own life, but actually the fates of the entire human race, human history itself. You know, there's a Russian author called Solzhenitsyn who once uh, wrote, he spent uh, several years, many years, as a prisoner in the Russian gulags, and he wrote this, that the line between good and evil does not cut through between nations or classes or political parties, but right through every human heart. And the result of this tension 
is a world that is so full of potential and beauty, but that is shot through with suffering, with death, with shame that we contribute to on a daily basis. Call it what you want. Brokenness, evil, sin, that is the human condition. The psychologist Carl Jung uh, once wrote that none of us stands outside the collective human shadow of humanity. The Apostle Paul says all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's the same thing. And there's nothing it seems that like we can do about this. Really, we've tried. You know, there are many philosophies and religions that will try to emphasize the beauty and ignore the brokenness. They'll try to minimize or erase any moral guilt that we feel. They'll pathologize and diagnose away uh, any shame and guilt as kind of uh, psychological hiccups, that we don't need them. And we get a false sense of security and a sense of innocence when we engage with those ideas. And with enough willpower or self-talk or progress or technology, we can somehow eradicate or sin from the earth and from our own psyche and from our own heart. Have you encountered these ideas? It's all over the place. Others, however, will just fixate on the brokenness and will just tell, tell you that humans are all just terrible beings, that you know, we are parasites on Earth and we deserve to be wiped out in some cataclysmic environmental catastrophe. That's what we deserve. Neither of these two things, these two stories about humanity and redemption, are good news. They're both terrible news. But this is the good news. Yes, the brokenness inside of you and me is real, but so is the beauty. And God sees all of it. He sees your darkest thoughts, your highest aspirations, the things that, all the things that you've done, the things that you failed to do, and seeing all of it, he says, I love you. And because he loves you, he comes. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. The creator of heaven and earth was born into the body of a human baby, and his name was Jesus. You know, for God to be born as a human being, that in itself is a taking up of suffering. God bore the pain of mortality, of losing loved ones, of tired feet, of thirst, of hunger, of being betrayed, of mourning. God bore our suffering, he took it up. And then he lived the most beautiful life any human has ever lived. He taught the most amazing things. He loved those who everyone forgot. He looked at those that everyone overlooked. That was Jesus. He showed us what it meant to live a life that was so overflowing in love and compassion and faith and joy. But then Jesus suffered. He was crucified by the Roman authorities, conspired against by the, by the religious leaders, and he was pierced for our transgressions. You know, the most perfect human to have ever lived died the most excruciating death he could ever experience. God from heaven descended deep into death itself with nails and thorns like a lamb to the slaughter, just as Isaiah foretold. But he doesn't just suffer. He doesn't just, curiously, die. 
because he suffers to fulfill the full prophecy of Isaiah. Because this passage is not about meaningless suffering. There is a reason to his death. And because of that reason, we can have such deep hope. Because on that cross, in the midst of horror and humiliation, something beautiful happens, a beautiful exchange. All our brokenness, our guilt, our shame, our angst was lifted up from us and laid on him. He became guilty for us to be innocent. He became condemned for us to be forgiven. He was broken for us to be made whole. He was abandoned for us to be found. He died for us to have eternal life. And he suffered senseless violence so that we can make sense of everything, of our life, of our suffering, of our purpose. Isaiah called this the punishment that brought us peace and that, the wound, that his wounds have healed us. We all like sheep have gone astray. So Jesus became the lamb led to the slaughter and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God so loved the world. He loves you. He loves me. And he adores us so much that he would endure this even to the very end. Not to force himself on you or to me, but to reach out to ask and ask us, will you reach out to me? That is good news. God reaching out to earth, arms open wide. So whether you're here today as a Christian or someone exploring big questions or you hold to a different worldview altogether, we all experience our failure. You know, even this week, I, I've been profoundly confronted by my own sin, and my own guilt, my own compromise. I honestly don't deserve the love of God or his attention or his care or his blessing on my life. But yet when God looks down at me, and when he looks down at you, he, he, he says, he sees someone worth saving. And he sees someone that, that he wants to love, and he does love and care for. So when you walk into a church or a cathedral, the main image you will see is not a God who loves his throne or his majesty. What you will see is a God nailed to a tree, nailed to a cross. You will see a God who loves his children more than his majesty. And that's why every church will have a cross, not a throne as the centerpiece of its building. And that's why it's so compelling to me anyway. It's God reaching out. And if you've chosen to reach back, as our baptism candidates have this morning, a new life opens up for you, a whole vast wide open space of existence. It's a life knowing that you are worth everything to God. It's a life knowing that you are truly forgiven, a life knowing that someone has your back and that he has a purpose for you, a life knowing that you are not alone in your suffering and that when you die, that is not the end. And it's a life when you can know God and when you can be known by him, when you can meet your fake maker face to face and find out that his eyes are full of love and his heart full of good intentions towards you, both in this life and in the next. That is the good news of Jesus. That is God's plan for your life and for mine. We heard about God's plan for our life. This is God's plan for 
our lives. The Catholics, in their catechism, they call this God's plan of sheer goodness. I love that. God's plan of sheer goodness. The good news of the crucified Jesus, prophesied by Isaiah, read by the Ethiopian eunuch, interpreted by Philip, and preached for 2,000 years. Are you still with me now? Great. Now, we don't know what happened to this Ethiopian man after this encounter. Uh, Church tradition says he went on to become an evangelist in Ethiopia. But what we do know is that he went away rejoicing, full of joy. He was a man, rich, powerful, influential, who found a joy that the world could not offer. But also, he was a man whose life was going to be forgotten. Remember, he was a eunuch, no wife, no children. And in the ancient world, the way you achieve immortality is by passing down your family name. He had none of this. After his life, he was going to be a forgotten footnote in, in, in the books of history, gone like the wind. But God had other plans. God saw this man by himself in the desert, seeking after him and needing someone to come alongside him, and he went after him. He, this is what God does. He seeks and saves the lost. He goes after the one, and he went after me. And he brings them into his family. He remembers them, and he wants his children to endure for all eternity. So the Ethiopian official went down into the water and was raised into everlasting life. Now, all this could be the hundredth time you've heard this, or it could be the first time you've heard this, and you might be very confused. If you're in the confused camp, that's absolutely fine. It is confusing, it's, it's, it's mysterious. And the Ethiopian eunuch had questions, and he had someone to come and explain it with him. And so again, if, if you feel something stirring in your heart, and you're wondering, gosh, is there something here for me? I really encourage you to lean in to that stirring. Try Alpha, try reading the Bible, talk to a Christian friend, lean in. These moments don't come uh, all the time in life, so lean into that. And for those of us in the room who have perhaps been a Christian for a long time, or just been baptized, it can be easy to desensitize ourselves to the wonder and the beauty and the scandal and extravagance of the cross. They're everywhere, around necks, on buildings, on graves, they're all over the place, and we sing about them week in, week out. And it can be easy to start thinking about what I can do for God. But the good news has been and will always be what God has done for us. And if you've moved here, um, into the city, and you're kind of trying to figure out how to navigate this place, I really encourage you, um, remember the cross. Oxford is a beautiful city, but it can be quite a brutal place, like any cities, unless you have something grounding you in security, in love, and spiritual depth. I, I encourage you, behold the cross, remember it, um, because that will be the thing that will uh, carry you on uh, in the city and for the rest of your life. I'd love to invite the band to come up now um, and we all stand together. As we 
begin to worship, I, I, would, I pray that we would be captivated by the cross of Jesus Christ, by his wounds, by his loving face, who he was. And can we close our eyes together and um, you know, maybe put out a hand as if you're receiving something or on your heart, hand on your heart to kind of put it, into, put it in there. Um, I want to pray a prayer about if, if you would like to be captivated again by the cross or receive the love that I've been talking about for the first time, I, I, I would love to pray this with you all. Um, a very simple prayer, three things. It's just thank you. Um, uh, sorry, sorry, thank you. And I commit my life, I commit to you. It's, it's very simple, and I'll pray. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you that though you see me, you love me. We thank you that you came and died for me. Jesus, I'm sorry for the things I've done, the things I've failed to do, the things I've thought and said. Um, Thank you that you've forgiven me for those things. Lord, I pray that you would come into my heart this morning, right now, and that you would show me for the first time or for the thousandth time the beauty and the extravagance and the wonder of your cross. In Jesus' name, amen.